Today's scripture is John 2, 13 through 22. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. May the Lord add a blessing to the reader and the hearing of his word. I suppose that if I was to do a survey this morning, or if we were to do a survey this morning of the most popular and, and talked about events in the life of Jesus in our remembrances, I wonder uh, just what would that list look like. I am certain that there would surely be certain events and occasions in Jesus' life that would be in all of our top five, you know, like the birth of Jesus, the birth narrative, and the shepherds, definitely the crucifixion and the resurrection. Uh, no doubt most of us would talk about Jesus walking on the water, raising Lazarus from the dead, the parable of the prodigal son, these and, and, and maybe a few others, no doubt, <coughs> would be a common theme among everybody's top five, I am sure. But I wonder, I wonder this morning, just how many of us would, would have Jesus disrupting the temple process in our top five this morning? How many of us would, would find it worthy of being in our top five mentions that Jesus turned over the tables and would find that most interesting and memorable? Well, I can say this for sure, that those who were present with Jesus on that day and who found Jesus in the temple overturning those tables and chasing out those money chargers would have considered that as memorable an event of they remember Jesus ever doing. In fact, like the crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus' clearing of the temple is mentioned in all four Gospels. That is not true about the birth narrative of Jesus. That is not true about the shepherds. That is not true about Jesus walking on water. That is not true about Lazarus being raised from the dead. But disturbing what was going on in the temple is mentioned in every account of Jesus' life 
If nothing else, if nothing else, beloved, that should just give us some insight into the importance and significance of the event that we meditate upon this morning. When Jesus walked into the temple on that day, he was making a statement. A statement of the revelation of the kingdom of God. It was a statement to reveal the kingdom that was, the kingdom that is, and the kingdom that is to come. The kingdom in which we all now dwell. What Jesus was doing was once again giving a sign of the kingdom. Last week we looked at the wedding at Cana. And you might recall that we made mention that the wedding of Cana was just the beginning of the revelations. It was just the beginning of the revelations. It's beginning of the knowledge to understand that Jesus came to dismantle the old religion. He came to dismantle the old religion, not by destroying it, but by fulfilling it. He came to fulfill it and therefore make the old way obsolete. We understand obsolete, don't we? Doesn't mean it was destroyed. What it means is that the old was of value for that time, but when the new has come, the new is better. The new is better. The new is to be preferred. I had a question for you this morning. Anybody here got a flip phone? Does anybody have a flip phone? Come on, somebody's got to have a flip phone. Nobody has a flip phone. But I remember when I first got my flip phone, I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. You know what? It made me feel like Captain Kirk when he was calling up to Scotty on the Starship Enterprise. Kirk over and out. I used to close it just like that. Those flip phones, beloved, worked. And they were sufficient for what they were designed to do. But when the modern advances in smartphones came, those flip phones became obsolete. Obsolete. If you have one, please upgrade. Please. All your contacts are asking you, please upgrade. This is what Jesus came to do, beloved. He came to fulfill the faith. He came 
to upgrade the worship. He came to reveal more fully the kingdom of God. The Old Testament worship and law was a flip phone. Jesus came to reveal the smartphone of God's grace and his truth. And this is what he did when he walked into the temple in John chapter 2. Here's the point. Here's the point this morning. When Jesus walked into the wedding at Cana, and when he walked into the temple in Jerusalem, he was doing the same thing. He was manifesting what happens when the kingdom of God invades the kingdoms of this world. He was manifesting what happens when the kingdom of God is properly manifested in the world, in the church. Last week, we saw the manifestation of that kingdom as that kingdom brings joy. This week, we see the impact and the manifestation of that kingdom as that kingdom brings judgment. That's the issue. Jesus, the kingdom of God, brings joy, manifests judgment. The coming of Jesus in the kingdom, as we see in Romans chapter 14 and verse 17, remember that the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit. So what we learned last week, this week we learn of the kingdom of God and its judgment. And we learn this as we meditate upon John 2, 13 through 22, and we see our Lord's presence at the temple. We see our Lord's passion in the temple. And we see our Lord's promise at the temple. Let's talk about his presence for a moment. In John chapter 2, verses 13 through 14, the Bible reminds us that the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Last week, we talked about the significance of Jesus at the wedding. Jesus now leaves Cana, and the Bible says, that he and his family makes their way to Jerusalem for the Passover. And the idea of Passover, beloved, is significant. It's significant throughout the Gospel of John. And Jesus, and John reminded us very early on in Jesus' ministry that Jesus attended the Passover. And not only did he attend the Passover, 
But during the Passover, he did what everyone did. And that is Jesus went to the temple to worship. For the Feast of Passover was a yearly, a yearly commemoration of that great and grand event in Israel's history, you might remember, of the divine emancipation and redemption of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And the Passover is designed to commemorate, to commemorate what God promised and what God did. Exodus chapter 12 and, and verse 7, on the eve of their emancipation from, 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 from Egypt, and God tells them that they shall take some of the blood of this lamb, a lamb, a male lamb, an unblemished male lamb. They were to sacrifice and take the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they were to eat that evening. Because the death, because God was going to come and death was coming upon the firstborn of all of Egypt. Of all who dwelt in Egypt. And God says, take a lamb, an unblemished lamb, a male lamb, sacrifice it, take the blood, put it on the doorpost, put it above the door. And then in verse 13 of Exodus chapter 12, he says, and the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague shall befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. That marked the redemption of Egypt, of, of Israel out of slavery and bondage in Egypt. The Passover celebration was a yearly commemoration of that grand and glorious emancipation and redemption. And every year, every year, the Jews, the faithful, those God-fearers and believers in Jehovah, were called upon to go up to Jerusalem and commemorate, remember, and celebrate who God is and what God had done in redeeming them from Egypt. In fact, in Luke chapter 2 and verse 41 reminds us that Jesus and his family went up to Jerusalem for Passover Every year. Since he was a young boy, this is something he did with his family every year. And therefore, when Jesus now enters into the public ministry and the holy calling that has been upon his life, he again goes to Jerusalem. And the Bible reminds us that he would continue to do this every year until his death, which happened on Passover. 
Jesus goes to Jerusalem because it was expected of him to go. All Jews were expected to go. But he also went because of his own expectations as Messiah. Because of his own understandings as the Lamb of God. During Passover, beloved, a male lamb without blemish was offered and, and sacrificed. And this lamb and his blood were the centerpiece of the Passover remembrance. Jesus, beloved, Jesus understood himself to be the spotless lamb of God, whose blood, like the lamb in Egypt, would cover the doorposts of the hearts of his people. As the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, Jesus is our Passover lamb. His blood covers us. The lamb in Egypt made all the difference. Jesus going to the temple at Passover is proclaiming that it is the Lamb of God who makes all the difference. The presence of Jesus at Passover, beloved, is the presence of Jesus at the center of what it means to be saved. Without the Lamb, there is no Passover. This is what God said to them in Egypt. Without the Lamb, I don't pass over. Without the Lamb, there is no Passover. Without the blood, there is no redemption. Perhaps you've asked the question, or perhaps you've Somebody else has asked the question to you, and perhaps you're wondering, why do we sing so much about the blood? Why do we pray about the blood? Why do we preach about the blood? Why do we commune with the blood? We do so, beloved, because Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the Passover Lamb whose blood saves us. Because the Bible is clear in Hebrews 9 and 22 that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Whose blood? Not yours. Not mine. Not some sheep or goat or bull. It's the blood of Jesus, the precious blood of Jesus the Lamb. The presence of Jesus at Passover is the presence of Jesus at the center of what it means to be saved. It is the presence of Jesus at the center of what it means to worship. 
We say it often. We say it often, I know. And as we go through the Gospel of John, you will hear it said again and again and again. Jesus is everything. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. The Bible says that Christ is also the head of the church, which is the body. He is the beginning. He is supreme over all. So he is the preeminent one. He is first in everything. The songs we sing, the prayers we pray, the words we preach, the fellowship we enjoy, the lives we live, all of it, all of it is because of Jesus. It is the presence of Jesus that makes it possible. It is the presence of Jesus that makes it meaningful. It's the presence of Jesus at the temple at Passover. It is the presence of Jesus in the worship of God's people. Why did Jesus go to Jerusalem and go to Passover and go to the temple? Because, beloved, it is where he belonged. It is where he came to be. The Lamb of God at the center of the worship of God. It is his right place. And that's why, that's why he was so passionate about it. No wonder, no wonder, beloved, we see his passion for it. When Jesus walked into the house of worship in John chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, beloved, he saw misuse. He goes up to Jerusalem for the Passover. He goes there to celebrate. He goes there, and instead of celebration, he sees abuse and misuse. And when he sees the misuse and the abuse, the Bible says that he is beside himself. After all, this is his place. After all, this is where he belongs. This is his father's house. And in verse 17, it says that his passion, that his zeal consumed him. And not only did it consume him, but his passion and his zeal was evident and present for all to see. Because our Lord was zealous. He was zealous. He had a passion. 
He had a passion for his father. He had a passion for his father. The temple was where God the Father was to be worshipped. And notice what Jesus says in verse 16, right? He says, my father's house. He calls the temple my father's house. Note the intimacy with which he spoke about the place. He didn't call it the temple. He didn't call it the church. He said, my father's house. Why? Because this is the place where God's people, God's children come to spend time with him. And you have turned it into a place of profit. This is the place of ministry. And you have turned it into a market. This is the place of prayer. And you have turned it into a den of thieves. Listen. Listen to the passion and zeal of Christ. What he is saying, beloved, that by desecrating the Father's house, they were disrespecting Father God. And if Jesus had a passion for anything, he had a passion for God the Father. Not only do we see his passion for the Father, we also see his passion for his people, don't we? The temple was for the people of God. It was for the people to worship God. It was for the people to come and sacrifice to God. It was for the people to come and make prayers to God. And the people of God, at the temple, they needed sacrifices. They needed sheep. They needed bulls and oxen. They needed pigeons to offer sacrifices. And when Christ came into the temple, when he drove out the oxen and the sheep and the pigeons, when he overturned the money tables, what he did, he did because he had a passion for the people. Why? Because those selling animals and exchanging currency at the temple were taking advantage of the people. They had cornered the market. The Jewish authorities had cornered the market. There was nowhere else to buy pigeons. There was nowhere else to buy oxen. There was nowhere else to buy sheep that would satisfy the requirements of the temple authorities. And since they had cornered the market, they were charging outrageous prices. A nickel pigeon was being sold for four dollars. They were requiring exorbitant fees. No matter where you came from, no matter what money you had to purchase with, you had to exchange your money for the temple money. And that didn't come cheap either. In other words, the have-nots 
were taken advantage of by the haves. The powerful were taking advantage of the powerful, of the powerless. And if that wasn't bad enough, if that wasn't bad enough, all of this, all of this commotion, all of this trading was taking place in the court of the Gentiles. The Jewish authorities were not even using their own space. They were using the one space where the Gentiles would come and could come and worship God. And so you see in their actions an elitism, an inherent nationalism. They treated the Gentiles as less than themselves. They were treating the Gentiles as less worthy of having a space to equally honor and worship God. The Jewish authorities considered the temple to be their temple. The temple was their space. And they were treating those not like them as less than them. And Jesus says, when he walks in there, Jesus says, this is my father's house. And my father's house welcomed all his children. All his children. The Lord Jesus walking into the temple is a reminder to us, beloved, that the Lord from the very beginning has never played favorites amongst his children. In Isaiah chapter 56 and verse 7, and God says, And these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offering and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. All nations. All nations. The house of God was to be a place of equity. It's to be a place of righteousness. It's to be a place of peace. And yet when Jesus walked into the temple, what did he see? He saw inequity. He saw unrighteousness and injustice in God's house. Beloved, unrighteousness and injustice keep people from worshiping. And for Jesus, for Jesus, the issue wasn't the goats. The issue wasn't the pigeons or the sheep. But Jesus was echoing what God had long been saying through the prophets in Micah chapter 6, verse 7 and 8. Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? With ten thousands of rivers of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? No, he has told you, O oh man, what is good. 
And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. When Jesus walked into the temple and overturned the tables, he was walking in the footsteps of Micah. He was walking in the footsteps of Amos, where Amos declared in in chapter 5, verse 22 through 24, even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps until justice rolls on like a river and righteousness like a never-flowing stream. Beloved, the kingdom of God, as we've seen, is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And the Lord of the kingdom is just as concerned with righteousness and peace as he is with joy. This is not only the zeal for which Jesus overturned the tables in the temple, but this is the zeal with which Jesus went to the cross. You do understand this, that not only did he go to the cross for your joy and my joy, he also went to the cross to secure righteousness and peace. Don't be mistaken, beloved. Justice and righteousness are inherent in the gospel. Jesus lived for it. Jesus died for it. Jesus had a passion for it, a zeal for his people. You see the passion of our Lord there in the temple? A passion for his father, a passion for his people, He had a passion for their worship. He had a passion for their worship. All this commotion, all this money changing, all this profiteering, all this stealing, it kept people from doing what they had been called to do. Worship. 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 And what the temple authorities were doing, beloved, was making worship more difficult. They were making worship more burdensome. As if it wasn't difficult or burdensome enough, Marius. They were making it even more so. Beloved, listen to me this morning. Jesus didn't come to make worship more complicated. He came 
to make it more simple. Jesus didn't come to make worship more exclusive. He came to make it more inclusive. He didn't come to make it more ritual. He came to make it more spiritual. Let's form more about faith, less about the law, and more and more about grace. This is what he would say. This is what he would say to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, beginning in verse 30 and verse 23, where he says to her, for the hour is coming. No, in fact, it is already here. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. This is kingdom worship. This is the worship that Jesus came to refine. This is the worship that Jesus came to renew. This is the worship that Jesus came to renovate. And nothing fired up Jesus more than that the people of God would freely worship God. This was his passion. This was the zeal that consumed him. This is the reason he promised to die. This is the reason why he promised to die. This is the reason why he makes a promise. When the temple authorities saw the zeal, when they saw the passion that Jesus had for the Father, when they saw the zeal and the passion he had for his people, when they saw the zeal and the passion he had for worship, they were amazed. They were intrigued. They had never seen anything like this before. This was something they could have never imagined would ever be seen in the temple. I mean, when, when, when they were looking at Jesus overturning the temple tables and, and running out the money changers and the animals, I'm sure they stood there with their mouths wide open. It's like the day that I was watching television and I saw those people raiding and riots in the Capitol. I was like, what is that? I had never imagined anything like that whatever happened I was dumbfounded I was speechless how could this happen that's how they are at the temple absolutely taken back by what they saw 
So this is the type of response Jesus always gave them. This is what Jesus always did. In Matthew chapter 8 and verse 27, the Bible tells us that when he spoke to the wind, and he spoke to the waves, and he calmed the storm, the response of the disciples that looked at him, and they looked at each other, and they said, what manner of man is this? In Mark chapter 1, in verse 27, when Jesus cast out the demon, those watching, amazed, and having never seen or heard anything like this, they said, what thing is this? In John chapter 2, verse 18, when Jesus overturned the tables and he drove out the money exchangers, the Jewish authorities looked at him and no doubt, with eyes wide open, said, Who are you? Who do you think you are? How do you dare do these things? By what authority do you assert today to be able to do these things? Who gave you the right to come and take over our temple? You know what Jesus told them in essence, beloved? Jesus told them, you have already ruined and destroyed Herod's temple. But I'll tell you this, if you try to destroy the true temple of God, like you have ruined Herod's temple, I'll raise it up again in three days. Now, beloved, you got to understand something here, okay? They were absolutely enamored with Herod's temple. And well, they should have been. It was a grand structure. At the time, the temple was 46 years in construction and still not finished. It would be another 37 years before it was absolutely complete. It was massive. It was elaborate. It was expensive. It was ornate. And they and all were impressed by it. And when Jesus said to them, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. They were dumbfounded. Who do you think you are? How dare you threaten this magnificent structure? But did Jesus threaten, really threaten to destroy it, beloved? Of course not. Of course not. 
Jesus didn't make a threat. Read it carefully. Jesus made a promise. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. He made a promise. It is the promise of the kingdom. It is the promise that the temple of God, like the worship of God, like the kingdom of God, is indestructible. It is the promise of resurrection glory. It is the promise not to rebuild Herod's temple, but it is the promise of a new temple. It is the promise of an everlasting temple where God and his people dwell together. It is a new temple. It is the promise where there are God's new people where they put on new robes and sing new songs because they are new worshipers in spirit and in truth. He didn't make a threat. He made a promise. Now there's a new temple. And he's standing in the midst of the old temple. And the old temple... Is a flip phone. Because the new temple, the smartphone has come. And you don't need the old temple anymore. The new temple is Jesus. You want a sign? You want a sign? I'll give you a sign. John chapter 3 and verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal Beloved, when they heard Jesus, they didn't understand the promise. You know what they heard? They took it as a threat. They didn't understand the joy. So you know what they heard? The judgment. Jesus only threatens those who refuse to believe. Those are the ones, beloved, who hear the threats. Judgment comes upon those who refuse to receive. John chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. Why did they hear judgment rather than joy? It is because they refuse to believe. What do you hear this morning? Listen, beloved. 
Jesus does not come this morning to threaten judgment. He comes to promise life to all those who believe, to all those who believe. For the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit for all those who believe. If you refuse to believe, then you won't hear the promise. You will indeed hear the judgment. But to those who believe, his words are not threat. They are full of promise. His words are not condemnation, but they are consolation. His words are not hurtful, but they are hopeful. His words are not death. His words are life. And life eternal. Listen, listen, beloved. When Jesus walked into the temple, like when he walked into the wedding, he changed everything. Joy was now in him. Life was now in him. Righteousness and peace are now found in him. He changed everything because Jesus is everything. He is all in all. He is all in all. He is all in all to this world, to me. I pray that he is all in all this world to you.